Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have 3 to one go with Cosmo Macero, an interview with Jeffrey Michael Tinkham, author of the book Talk Show, and in two minutes with Tom, Tom reports back from the congressional swearing-in ceremony in D.C. First up, 3 to one go Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, we look at five fascinating workplace predictions for 2019 from the Washington Post. Potential trends impacting everything from cubicles to compensation. And the new year brought great news for thousands of national grid gas workers represented by the United Steelworkers Union. A months-long lockout may finally be at an end. Finally, a U.S. senator from Massachusetts announces she's running for president. A U.S. senator from Utah, who used to be the governor of Massachusetts, also appears headed for the campaign trail in 2020. Can Elizabeth Warren or Mitt Romney topple President Trump? We'll discuss. Joining me here on 321GO is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Kyan, Happy New Year. It's 2019. 2019. We have now entered the second year of OA on air, sort of, right? It's, I mean, it kind That's of exciting. is. exciting. It's, it's, it's the second year. That is correct. The, the second calendar. The second calendar year, year of OA on air, including yes. this program, 321GO. Congrats to us. Congratulations. All right, let's get to it. All right, Kyan. so as 2019 gets underway, uh, Washington Post takes kind of a good look uh, prediction style at workplace trends and, 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 and makes basically five um, you know, pretty comprehensive workplace predictions for 2019 um, worth going through in some level of detail. Number one, uh, in the category of benefits, family leave for non-parents will become more common, meaning... And, and, and I think they, they, they are implying that some form or at least some level of paid family leave um, uh, will become more common for, say, caring for an elderly parent or some other, you know, non-child uh, you know, non, uh, care type situation or non, quite frankly, uh, you know, maternity uh, uh, type uh, leave situation. And, 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 and that's, that's, that's their first prediction. Um, what do you think about that? It makes sense because people are living longer, which means we have parents aging that need to be taken care of. Um, you know, paternity leave for companies is also gaining popularity as well, which is, you know, the idea of, oh, my goodness, letting a father stay home for some time <laughs> after their child is born. Um, it's just one of those necessary things. We've got to figure out ways to be more open to letting people figure out how to take care of who they need to take care of while re- while keeping their job. And that's the biggest thing is that the Family Medical Leave Act guarantees that you can take time off to care for a child, a parent who's yeah, ailing, Up to whomever. 12 weeks, three months, yeah. doesn't guarantee you get paid for it, but no. it guarantees that you have a job to come back to, and that's important. And some employees still fully aren't aware of that. Now, you got to hope their employer, their HR or benefits coordinator says, oh, by the way, you know, 
understanding understand. you're in this situation, you have yeah. this. But some employees still don't understand that fundamental benefit uh, that American workers enjoy. It's a good lesson to take a, take a, take a few minutes, read the policies. Reviewing. <laughs> Uh, within your company. Always and also, read the HR pack. Yeah, but also, you know, pay attention to what's happening in the world around you. Yeah. All right, compensation. Prediction, a wage gap between old and new workers will create new headaches. So this is a new type of um, wage gap. It, it, it's, it's, it, it's generational, right? It's generational. And, 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 and the risk is it's, it, it's creating... Um, some difficulties within the workplace, um, and, and it's forcing companies to, to be creative and how to learn new workers. What I thought was really interesting about this is one of the people they interviewed um, who works for a human resources practice said, in today's labor market, the best way to get a raise is to go find a job at another company. Yeah, that's that, that's employers are not as willing to pay more for the people they've got, and it's a really interesting dynamic. That really surprised me mainly because i thought it was more expensive to hire somebody than to keep somebody but i don't know maybe i'm wrong I, there's well, there, there's certainly a whole set of costs just associated with it with onboarding, onboarding and, new, and onboarding training new employee. And a, a, absolutely um part of what this is getting at though is um the the difficult dynamic that, be, that can be created when there's a lot of sudden transparency which is becoming more common within a workplace is oh what he's getting paid what i'm getting paid and wait a second and well now the it new becomes laws a headache for place. employers because because they, they, they don't want to um have to make regular um sort of frequent pay adjustments to sort of keep everybody happy but that that might be necessary <laughs> you're silently laughing i have to inform our viewers I am. I'm silently, You're silently laughing. laughing. <laughs> God forbid that we. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and the men versus women, and you can't. You know, new policies that you can't ask somebody what they made at a previous job. Um, those no, those sorts that, of things that, are important. It, yeah, that's 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 um, it's a really good point. That's a that's a new newish leg, legislation yeah. that says, hey, you know what? You know, you can't ask about like how old are you, this and that. Oh, so what are you getting paid? That's can't a no no. No, that's a no no. So. More good difficult. for good for employees. Yeah. All right. Number three, privacy. Workers will demand that employers do more to ensure their personal data. Uh, yes, please. Yeah, there's been a glo global <laughs> awakening about threats to privacy of data as consumers will spill over into concerns about the personal data we give our employers. Um, think about it. Think of the employer yeah. as, as kind as like a retailer, or they've got that data. Yeah. They need to be. They need to be prepared in the event of a data breach. And they need to make sure that they are taking adequate measures. And I am certain that many, and perhaps most employers, are not taking adequate measures. Uh, they might not even know what adequate measures are, depending on the type of industry they're in. It, it's funny. When I read that, I was like, well, of course. But then at the same time, I, I did pause and think of, you know, how much your employer really does know about you. They've got your Social Security. They've got your banking information. You know, all of these other things. Um, we've seen data breaches at very large companies, credit card companies, banks, Target, you know, you name it. Yeah, please, protect protect my identity. I'd appreciate that. <laughs> All right. This next one's my favorite because I love a cool workspace. The office phone booth 
will become a workplace staple. This is uh, this apparently is the sort of reverse dynamic. It's like the tide came in, now it's going out on the open concept. People are like, oh, I love open concept. And now it's like, wait a second, I need to make a phone call. Yeah. Uh, do, do I have to go downstairs to like the lobby on my cell phone in the corner? Uh, they want privacy. So now cubicles are being redefined in a way that it gives people certain... Uh, or, or, or being reintroduced into the open workspace. Uh, they're calling it the office phone booth because people have lost their privacy. If you go, um, I toured the WeWork space in Boston at some point last year, and they have those kind of set up everywhere. And they really are. They're, they're tiny little booths with a bench in it. And you sit on your phone, and I think there's probably an outlet. Um, you know, the idea of this open concept is great until you need to call your credit card company or maybe you're, you know, nagging your spouse or whatever's happening. You don't always want everyone to hear everything you're doing. Um, Isn't WeWork basically Starbucks, but not the coffee's not as good? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen their kitchens? That's They've a got joke. I actually have. It's an coffee. amazing, yeah. it's it's an amazing really cool. um, uh, dynamic that those types of uh, shared workspaces have. They also have like nap rooms and ping pong yeah. tables. And um, Personally, I just like having an office with a door. Yeah. Um, not not just for phone calls, but sometimes you just need to shut people out so that you can get your stuff done. I like I feel like a phone booth is is helpful, but at a certain extent, sometimes you really do need space to work. Yeah, and different. I agree. I'm I'm one of those people. I, you know, um, but um, people like different work styles, and um, and that happens. You know, and, and, and there's. There's different uh, dynamics in a workplace, and people like different things. But there's that prediction. Last one. All right. This is a good one or a bad one. Email will move past its peak and continue its demise. I did not realize it was demising. Fake news. (laughs) They've been saying email is dead for so long, and I I find it becomes more and more critical in my work life every day. Not not in the ways maybe it, it it has been in the past, but it's it's a fundamental way to not just communicate but to organize and to store things. And I, I use my email accounts plural for uh, just as much, if not more, than I ever have. So this does touch upon you know Slack is a really cool app that people are using to communicate, but also the um, group messaging app in Office. I think that that's that's its own thing that could be used in place of email when it's like a quick hey you know uh, more of a chatting. Yeah. But um, I don't know if demising is even a word. But I'm I, I would be shocked. I I don't know how people lived or operated or worked without. Email. And if you and if you and if you manage documents and files and transfer them schedules and and schedules, yeah. I, I, you know, th- there just isn't a messaging texting app that's going to work for me in that regard. No, so. I agree. All right, Cayenne, five workplace trends or workplace predictions for 2019. All right, joining me now are Laura Warwick and Ben Josephson, colleagues here with me at O'Neill & Associates. Um, hey, big news, uh, really, uh, as we sit here just in the last sort of 24 to 48 hours, a months-long lockout of workers for National Grid appears to be on the brink of ending. Laura, why don't you start telling me about it? 
Um, great. Thanks for having me, Cosmo. Um, last night, uh, the, the gas workers um, reached a tentative agreement after six very, very long months with National Grid. Um, that tentative agreement uh, addresses a number of issues related to safety, um, national gas, uh, the future workforce, um, and then some provisions for current workers. So they're going to be bringing that uh, contract to their members for a vote on Monday. Um, and hopefully um, that will finally put an end to this lockout, um, which has been going on since June 24th. Okay. Now, Ben, um, in addition to this excellent news just from from last night, around close to midnight on uh, the evening of January 2nd, just as we sit here, that was, um, there was also some important legislation passed just a couple of days before, uh, prior that right. uh, that provides some much-needed stability to the families of these, uh, of these workers. That, that's right, Cosmo. There's a couple uh, dynamics here. Um, and, and it really all comes back to the fact that the members of the of the Massachusetts General Court, the House and Senate, as well as the governor, um, provided great support um, to the gas workers throughout this uh, this ordeal. And what you're referencing is that they passed on uh, New Year's Eve a uh, provision that would allow for the extension of unemployment insurance in the case of a lockdown lockout uh, currently capped at 26 weeks that would be extended. Uh, another 26 weeks to workers who were locked out uh, in this situation through no fault of their own. And that, I'm sure, played no small part in this agreement uh, taking place this last week. Uh, so so multiple dynamics at play, uh, but all possible with the great support of uh, the folks in that building. And that's really that legislation was really important because, you know, it, it prevents or uh, unethical companies from taking advantage of workers. So that was uh, that was a very helpful thing in, in reaching an agreement. Um, and, you know, I think it's this is a I think the gas workers feel that this is a, a good day for the Commonwealth um, for the past six months. A lot of residents, businesses, developers and others have been um, inconvenienced, to say the least. So they're looking forward to bringing this back to their members for a vote. Just a final thing, Ben, in terms of relationships with legislators and, and, and electeds and, and, and managing those with with uh, with members of the union and then and then lower the media and the messaging and the social media strategy and and, and having a relationship and supporting uh, a, a group of workers like this on this kind of a lengthy labor dispute exhausting am I correct like late nights and 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 all and just exhausting yeah and there's a, there's a couple pieces of that I mean there's the legislators in their role as as leaders civic leaders in their communities expressing what they're hearing from their constituents and business leaders, uh, that the, the desire to have uh, a safe uh, and experienced workforce working on natural gas in their neighborhoods, on their uh, new commercial developments in their communities. And, and then, as I said before, taking that advocacy and moving it in the direction of a, of a concrete piece of legislation uh, that, that, that allowed for workers to not be placed at a disadvantage uh, at the bargaining table against a large uh, multinational company. The extension of that unemployment insurance really allowed them to bargain without having their uh, the threat of economic ruin uh, as a possibility. So, and and I should also say that you know individual cities and towns, mayors and and police chiefs and fire chiefs themselves also recognized that that it was important to have a safe workforce. So all those things came into play. Excellent. Yeah. First and last word, Laura. Yeah. It, you know, it, it was a long, exhausting process. And I think, you know, even more so because we got a chance to see firsthand some of the individual lives that were impacted, um, you know, 
uh, parents with kids who have cancer, um, just a lot of very stressful times for people who are out of work, people who have dedicated their lives to National Grid, you know, who are out of a job for six months. So I think we got to see personally, you know, the individual stress, but also the commitment of these people. So um, I think it's really gratifying that they're, you know, hopefully going to be able to go back to work um, because, you know, Massachusetts needs these people. They are the most experienced gas workers in the state um, and our communities are safer with them there. All right, Ben Josephs and Laura Wark, thanks so much. Good stuff. All right, Cayenne. So let's talk about the presidential race. United States Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, Democrat, forms an exploratory committee, says, I'm in, I'm in. Okay, I'm running for president in 2020 against Donald Trump or for the Democratic nomination, for the Democratic nomination. That is what her FEC filing says. But yes. to the public, she's saying, I'm just testing, testing the it waters. Yeah. yeah, well, because you, you can always bail out. Number two, Mitt Romney, newly minted, literally, literally just sworn in. In fact, before he was sworn into before the U.S. Senate, now a U.S. Senator from, from the state of Utah, formerly the Massachusetts governor. And a former candidate. And for a former candidate for president. U.S. Senate. In Massachusetts in 1994, and a former candidate for president, he he basically announces he's running for president because he does an op-ed in the Washington Post that says president's terrible, right? Yeah, lacks the moral character. Uh, uh, he yeah he top to bottom moral character, leadership qualities, um, status on the world stage. Don't like his shoes. You name it, he's it's in there, right? <laughs> so. He does that. He says, I'm looking forward to working with Majority Leader McConnell. So he just skips over the executive. Over. Yep. Yeah, forget him. I'm going to work. And, um, man, it's, a bo- it's, 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 it's strong. It's bold. Um, and um, you got to assume he's, he's not in, but it looks like he's in. It looks like he's he wants to run for president. It. So he's putting his toe in the water. Great to be a, it's, great, it's great to be a... A citizen in the state of Utah, when you're, you know, <laughs> the guy just gets sworn in. All kidding aside, me being um, uh, someone who thinks highly of Mitt Romney as a public official and a uh, p- public leader and such, um, it, it's it's an interesting dynamic. There, you, you got two candidates uh, right there: one uh, one uh, Democrat, uh, one Republican, uh, and two different types of uh, threatened opposition opposition to to President Trump. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of Democrats starting to throw their hats in the ring, and my guess is very quickly. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about the exploratory committee because uh, uh, it, it, it's it's a little bit of a misnomer, by, at least by the book, with regard to how Senator Warren has filed. Um, Which is no that. different than how most people do it. Okay. Um, but uh, technically, there is no such thing as an exploratory committee. Uh, so, for example, what Elizabeth Warren did, she filed with the FEC, which is the Federal Election Commission. It's an actual campaign committee. Uh, and that means, essentially, she can start raising money to run for president. Um, the idea of it calling it an exploratory committee is more of something for the media and the public uh, because they're not ready to formally declare, but they're ready to formally fundraise in the hopes of declaring, I think yeah. would be the best way to and, say and, it. And, and every, everybody, everybody, basically everybody s- does it. This does way. it that way. Yeah. What's it's interesting though different. is when you when you think about exploratory, you're, you're it sounds like oh they're doing a lot of research into issues and policy and also what it, it, all of which no doubt is true. Except the bottom line is 
The point is, okay, I can raise money. Let's see. Let's explore if people will give me money. Because if they will, then maybe I can uh, I can make a run of this. It's all, it's, it's all about raising the money. That raising the money, getting the idea of what the response is going to be. Um, the good thing about it being this way is that they do have to disclose. So in the past when people were doing something more known as the testing the waters committee, um, they could raise money, but it didn't have to all be disclosed. This is better. We want we want to know who's donating to our candidates for president, sure, um, and how much these people are donating. That's important. Um, and you know, and then at a certain point, they will then say, "I'm no longer exploring, and I have declared my candidacy." Uh, but that is not what she has done yet. Okay. Excellent. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321Go. Cayenne, thanks a lot. Great talking to you as always. Of course. Awesome. 321Go is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's all for 3, 2, and Go. Up next, an interview with Jeffrey Michael Tinkham about his new book, Talk Show. All right, up next, we're going to be talking to Jeffrey Michael Tinkham. Jeff Tinkham, he's the author of Talk Show, his breakthrough novel, his new novel. Uh, Jeff's an author based in Portland, Oregon, but with roots here in the Boston area. Jeff, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. All right. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you. Um, fascinated by this book because, uh, you know, uh, I'm always curious as to how characters develop and emerge in the minds of an author. And, and I know that the character around which Talk Show was built, a guy named Teddy Baxter, uh, is just an example of that. And, and I thought you might just start with an overview of what Talk Show was about, but really how that, that driving character, Teddy Baxter, emerged in your, in your imagination, in your, in your writing process, and how it came together. Yeah, great. Thanks. I'm I'm very thrilled to be here and um you know, I I the book sort of sort of appeared out of the ether to me, but um you know, uh the character of Teddy Baxter who is uh Ameri- in the story is America's uh, most popular late night TV talk show host and career going wonderfully, top of his game, top of the ratings, and he gets uh, he gets afflicted with a kind of very strange uh, illness malady, which is so seemingly undefinable, and uh, that's what we sort of turn on here, and his uh, friends and family and assistants uh, go on a wild chase trying to figure out what's going on with him. So we're, so we're talking about a fictional David Letterman kind of Conan O'Brien character, right? Johnny Carson. Johnny yes, Carson. Exactly. Rupert, yeah. Yeah, okay, got it, got it. The idea for him in particular, there was a couple things, but I, I, I think mostly it was that I, I thought that, um, you know, it's a huge fan of Carson and Letterman and all those guys and Conan and, you know, growing up. And I just thought that there hadn't been a fictional treatment either in a, a film or a book or a TV show of, of this particular uh, type of entertainer in our world. And I thought that that was, uh, you know, a failing, really. I mean, we 
movies about presidents, about war heroes, about athletes, but as the main character in, in something like this, the, the Carsons and Lettermans and Conans, you know, they seem like they're ripe for a, a fictional treatment. Yeah, the closest I can come, and it's not really that close, is would be the Jerry Lewis character and the King of Comedy, which, of course, is a very yeah. a very dark portrayal, and he's not the main character. He's kind of the foil, yeah. the side character, to, to, to Robert De Niro's Rupert Pupkin. I thought of mm. that. And yeah. but 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 you're right. There there really hasn't been um, any kind of a fictionalized treatment in, in, in literature or or, or entertainment. Yeah. So I think I think it's a great it's a great uh, great subject matter. Tell tell us more about uh, about Teddy in the book. Yeah. So, well, you know, and without giving too much away, I uh, you know as I went along and. I had a I had a writing partner out here, the writer Paul Curley, and my wife uh, Carol Ann Demar, who was she was she was the editor when it was done, and a very good editor. Um, you know, I I think that um, Teddy himself is uh, you know you're not immediately quite sure if you understand what he's doing. Once he gets afflicted with this thing, he does some things which are, you know, a little, a little, uh, maybe not the most uh, loving. And, um, you know, he's not immediately the character who you might uh, get behind in, in terms of understanding his motivations. But I sort of, I sort of wanted it to be a little questionable and made people wonder what, what this dude's up to. And, you know, the book is told... Uh, from the beginning in some flashbacks to when his parents moved out to uh, moved out to uh, Los Angeles to try and make it in show business. So that part is set in the late 60s, early 70s in Santa Monica and Hollywood. So his parents are uh, uh, characters in the beginning of the story as well. But but they don't achieve the type of success that, that he does in his career. Absolutely not, and that's that's uh, again. It's hard to trying to think about how to talk about it without you know you don't want to give too much away. But yes, it's sort of sort of a thing that it turns on a little bit. The fact that they their dreams and uh, most notably his mother are not are not quite uh, fulfilled at all, and how that how that affects what may have happened to him. Sure. So let, let's talk about your process, which, which fascinates me. Um, and, um, and for the listeners, we're talking to Jeffrey Michael Tinkham, author of Talk Show, by the way, available at talkshowthebook.com to be ordered. Um, let's talk about you. what is your, and how did your process, your writing process develop, uh, every, you know, as far as, time a day and what pages per day and what, and what and what's your when are you in the zone and what space do you work in and 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 that kind of thing sure so um i'm i'm a wicked early bird you know i'm up when it's light and um you know i do most of most of my work in the mornings and you know i'm i'm a very much a writer who it's it's all about uh, quality and not quantity. For example, if it, you know, I I have you know 
I'm looking around my desk right now and there's piles of notes still on other stuff. But when I was in the midst of this, I had a whole wall where there were post-its and notes and handwritten and handwritten journals. But once it makes it into the computer, very possible that it's going to make it all the way because I just, I, that sort of first word, best word thing is a, is a popular, popular thing I, I like to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm a very sort of active writer in terms of, you know, I can sit still for a minute, but then, you know, who knows what I'll do to get things going, you know, music, dancing, throwing the ball off the wall, going for a walk. Uh, one one uh, trick that I always have used for my process is from getting stuck, I'll go and make the bed or do the dishes and you know, while still being, you know, thinking about what's going on, but you're, you're physically occupied with the task. And I'll tell you, that's a trick that always works for me. That's great. Please explain, please explain dancing. You said dancing. <laughs> well, I love to dance as many, many of our former classmates might remember from various, uh, uh, High school events. But, That's right. Je you know. Je Jeff and I are, are both alumni of Belmont Belmont High School in Belmont, Massachusetts. But yes, dancing. That's right. Yeah. So the Gap Band, right? This is what we're talking about. Oh, the mid the, the, sure. Right? Of course. Cool, cool and the Gang, any yeah. kind of, you know, uh, I just, you know, uh, I feel like the creative process, no matter what you're doing, painting, writing, dancing, uh is is uh you know it's really all one thing it's connected and, no you're right it's it's it, 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 yeah. it's all interconnected when you're feeling creative yeah. you could yeah. uh you could create a piece of artwork you could write a, a, yeah. th a thousand yeah. great words you could, yeah that's yeah that's great. absolutely and i think i'm a very physical person all my life and i think so the you know to i mean some writers can sit for hours and just let it come out but i i can't do that so yeah. i got to be up and you know doing something and then, you know, hustling back to write something down on whatever scrap of paper I might find. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great to hear you're a morning person. I am also, you know, I look at my day uh, outside of sort of the typical work day. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was a journalist, I, I, I didn't have a, a typical, necessarily typical work hours, but, but now I do. And I, I, I find that the most available hours that I have to use are actually in the evening, but I just mm. can't. I just can't use them to be productive in a creative way. Just can't do it. So yeah. I'm like you. Early in the morning, it could be 90 minutes, maybe two hours if I get up early enough. That's yeah. the sweet spot for for yeah. for something like this. And, and and I think I think a lot of people uh, find that that's really the the ideal time of day to to devote to a project like like creating a novel. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I, you know, I get teased for going to bed early, but, you know, I'm usually the first one up wherever I am. So <laughs> that's when it works for me. That's great. Just a couple things before we close out. You mentioned, uh, I think, in the forward or in your acknowledgments being inspired by some educators. What, what are the, what, number one, what are the inspirations that went into and the people and the experiences that inspire you to write the, to write talk show? And also, at what stage in your, you know, adult life, post-graduate life, did you say, okay, 
I, 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 I'm, I have a career and I'm making a living in this way, but I know that what, what I'm, what my life is, is supposed to be about is, is, is creating, uh, is creating literature. Right. Well, I would say that, you know, I've always been a writer and some of it I say apparently because, you know, my mom will show me little stories that I wrote when I was a kid, mostly probably about the Red Sox, but, um, you know, at, at Belmont High School, um, people like Mary Slater and um, Marsha Westby were very influential in, in, you know, just supporting me and encouraging me. University of Rochester, I sort of stumbled into an incredible English department, which I didn't know I was, but... Yep. Um, and, you know, um, the, the book itself... I just, you know, like I said earlier, I feel like there's a little bit of a, like we mentioned earlier, that that creative flow or that creative energy that just was with me a lot of the time with this. And gosh, I feel like I feel very blessed that it that it was because it it's a it's a difficult thing to do, and it 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 really helped me along the way. And I feel I feel very happy with where it got to, and um, hopefully. Hopefully some other folks do, too. Excellent. Excellent. All right. The book is Talk Show, available at TalkShowTheBook.com. We've been talking to author Jeffrey Michael Tinkham, an old friend of mine, too. Jeff, hey, it's been great having you on the podcast, great having you on OA On Air, and uh, great success with the book. Uh, uh, it's a terrific piece of work. Thank you very much, Cosmo. You you are the man, and, um, you know, I, I feel very, very fortunate to talk to you here, and Thanks to everyone for helping out. I had a great time. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. Happy 2019. I know, I know. Our 2019. First, our first edition of Two Minutes with Tom of the year. Nice to be back. Um, How was you, your holiday? Good? It was good. Very good. good. It's um. Happy holidays to everybody. I was in Washington yesterday. You were. You were there for the swearing-in. I was there for the swearing-in. And uh, before we get to the swearing-in, which is an exciting kind of tale, but um, I met three people that listen to our podcast. Really? OA on air. Yep. Huh. Three people from Washington. And uh, so we, we've nice. got to tell... Hello to our three people in Washington. Yeah, I know. We've got to, we've got to tell the, our producer what kind of a great job he's doing. He is. Yep. Brooke. That, you know, the guy behind the, whatever he's behind. Brooke, we applaud you. Raising his arms. We appreciate you. Crazy. Yeah. So the numbers continue. Well, that's great. Yeah. We've got Washington, D.C. listeners. <laughs> um, so the swearing in, this was not your first swearing in that you've been to. But oh, God. It was the 116th Congress yeah. swearing in, and the, and the second swearing in of Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, 116th. The first one I went to was the 82nd Congress. When my father first went to Congress, and it was his swearing-in. And uh, we went for years and years and years. But yesterday had an exciting tinge to it. Not only was Nancy Pelosi brought back, and the first speaker to be brought back after a hiatus mm -hmm. since Sam Rayburn, but uh, I think she's proven to be just a terrific leader. And there, there, was, there was genuine enthusiasm for her coming back into the chair, uh, not only by the Democratic Party, but everybody in Washington. Just kind of a sigh of relief, uh, release. She, she, um, sigh of relief. She has, um, she's brought some degree of stability. Um,
people who know her, whether they like her or not, they know her to be just, you know, a, a, a very experienced. Steady uh, hand. A steady, a steady centrist, if you will, in the leadership in Congress, which is what's needed right now. Even though all the, all the, all the advertisements, all the advertisements during the course of the midterm elections against her, and the millions of dollars opposing her leadership, um, you know what broke through yesterday was a genuine enthusiasm about her leadership and her capabilities. It was also um, the 116th Congress is the most diverse and the most amount of women. And that too, I mean, that, that really made different? for an even more exciting day. There, there were people from all over the country, of of every description, of every size, of every of every of every income group. Uh, they are cheering on their respective, you know, new, mem- new members for the most part, new members of Congress getting sworn in, and um, you know, Ayanna Presley had a, a a throng of people uh, outside of her office door, and everybody was quite mm-hmm. happy and applauding her. I saw lots of pictures. Yeah, with Lori Trahan, the same way. Everybody was really quite enthusiastic. Um, you know, uh, Eddie Mackey made the rounds with us, uh, our, our U.S. senator. Um, Joe Kennedy was making the rounds everywhere because both he and Catherine Clark from our mass delegation, you know, had a, played a great hand in electing so many new faces to Congress all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they deserve an awful lot of appreciation for what it is they did. Um, and, and the others, uh, the more seniors, uh, Jim McGovern and, and, and uh, Richie Neal, of course, are taking over ma- major key legislative seats with mm-hmm. gavels, one in Ways and Means, the other in the Rules Committee, the two most important committees in the House of Representatives. Yeah. So that's an awful lot of power and a lot of good feeling coming our way in Massachusetts with our delegation. So uh, what was your favorite part of the, the experience? of so what, Because it was so different. Watching the smiles, honestly, watching the smiles of the families of, uh, of Lori Trahan and the old staff folks from around Marty Meehan's office that worked for him that came back into the fold to work for her during the campaign and now are working for her in her legislative uh, district and, and uh, le- legislative office and her district offices. So it's, it's kind of a nice kind of family-like atmosphere to go back and watch that happen, not only with her, with her but with Ayanna Presley as well, and her gathering, you know, her folks that came back uh, from, from every side of the city of Boston to wish her well, and were exactly that. They were, they were wishing her well and very happy for her. That's great. Yeah. Well, welcome back. Great to be back. It was a long day. It went from, went from about 8 o'clock in the morning till about 10, 10.30 last night, but it was, it was really quite worth it. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Don't forget to subscribe, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And you can also tune in on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.